G'day mate, 40 here. So it is about 5.15am. Uh, the, the birds are chirping by 4am. So during my well, past five weeks in Australia, I've been typically waking up by about 4am. And uh, it's Sunday here, it's Sunday morning. And uh, yesterday was Christmas and yesterday it was Shabbat. And I'm in Tanim Sands, and there's no synagogue in Tanim Sands. There's no synagogue in central Queensland, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, I don't think there's any synagogue within 300, 400 miles of here. So it was an, it was an interesting, interesting day. Uh, what do you do when you observe the, the Sabbath, when you observe Shabbat, according to Orthodox Judaism? And yet, there are no other observant Jews near you. There's no synagogue, and it's also Christmas Day, and you're back in Australia with your family, right? I, in large part, I've turned to Australia to spend time with my family and get, you know, get to, to know better my, my brother and my sister and my uncles and my aunties and my nieces and my cousins. And uh, my family holds traditionally Christmas in uh, Tenham Sands, and it's it's a big it's a big family event. So this is how I approach these things. So in general, I, I believe in holding your religion lightly. So this may not be the approach for everyone, but you can be religious in a way that's incredibly obnoxious. You can be religious in a way that uh, separates you from other people. You can be religious in a way that makes you difficult to interact with unless you are on the same religious uh, path and observance level. And I'm not into that. I think one should wear one's religion lightly so that it's not an unnecessary obstacle between, between you and other people. It's not the constant reference point for, for all your conversations. So, for example, uh, I've been active in 12-step programs for a decade, but to the best of my knowledge, I've never referenced Judaism in any of my participation in 12-step. So, never mentioned it with my sponsees. I've never mentioned it, to the best of my knowledge, in any of my shares. I don't mention it in outreach calls. Virtually, virtually never. So, other people I know... Um, they're always referencing, for example, their Christianity, right? You know, Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount. The Apostle Paul said this. You know, St. Peter experienced that. You know, Martin Luther tells us this. And I don't enjoy that, right? Particularly when, when the other person knows that I grew up a Christian and left it. I, I don't want my 12-step meetings contaminated by other people's religion because... One of the principles of 12 steps is that uh, we don't invoke outside issues so as to avoid separating people who badly need help from a program that can help them. So introducing my, my Judaism or someone else introducing Christianity or introducing politics into a 12-step program, to me it just unnecessarily separates you from other people and throws down unnecessary blocks between other people, who, addicts who need, need help, and a program that can deliver the help, and if you're going on about your religion, 
or your politics or any hot button outside issue, it just gets in the way. So similarly in, in the workplace, I don't talk uh, that, that much about uh, Judaism. I just, uh, I, I let it go. Uh, uh, similarly within Judaism, I don't talk that much about 12-step programs. Like if, if it comes up, I'll talk about it, but I don't, I don't push and promote, you know, an alternative spiritual path uh, within, within Judaism. And so too, I, when I, when I spend time with my family, I don't talk about Judaism unless someone else asks. I just let it go. And I admit, I find it obnoxious when people have to constantly refer everything back to one thing, be it a 12-step program or be it their religion or be it God or libertarian economics, whatever, when, when people have to constantly you know, refer back to one thing, I find it obnoxious. So I guess I'm postmodern. My, my very simple understanding of postmodern is that there's no one overarching ideology that is sufficient for dealing with life, that is sufficient for explaining the, the challenges that we face. So that's my understanding of, of postmodern. There's no one story that is adequate for our story. There's no one story that's adequate for life in the uh, 21st century. A 40 Christmas for all situational peace. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Art Bell. So, Art Bell, you, you, you make a lot of uh, interesting comments, and I, I really appreciate them. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate this, Art Bell. I bought a Shure mic for my iPhone, and I'm, I'm using it right now and uh, to give better quality audio. Uh, but unfortunately, I did not buy the video package. So when I try to use my Shure mic uh, with my gimbal, my phone, you know, tilts to one side. So to, to save 40 bucks on, on the video package with the Shure mic, now I can't use my Shure mic with my gimbal unless somehow I find a way to add, add tape and maybe a small pebble um, onto the other side of my phone to try to balance it out so that when I walk down the street with my gimbal that uh, the, the phone's not tilting to, to one side. I... Why didn't I buy the video package? It was just like an extra $30 or $40. And now I'm reduced to trying to tape, tape pebbles onto one edge of my phone so that it doesn't tilt to one side. Also, you, you suggested that I do more YouTubes about music, and that's a great idea, <sighs> along with many of your other suggestions. They're, they're excellent. So I, Air Supply is my, my favorite group of all time, and... I understand it now through the lens of 12-step addiction. Like, the the songs of, of Air Supply, right? They're, they're greatest hits. They're, are they not all about love addiction? So, when you're... 70% of people have a positive self-image, right? Are you sure about this? There's no certainty. Are you certain? Okay, so 70% of people, I think, have a positive self-image. That's what I read when I read up on self-verification theory. And so, we all filter all our life experiences and feedback we get through, through our own uh, self-image. So 70% of people have a positive self-image 
and so when they hear positive things they go oh yeah that, you know that's right and they feel good about it but when you have a negative self-image and you hear positive feedback then it disturbs you and it kind of decoheres your worldview it it shakes up your worldview it makes you feel less secure because if you have a negative self-image you prefer to be around people and situations that bring out that that negative feedback so uh, I have struggled with this and the negative self-image and it's just below the surface. So unless I'm in peak uh, spiritual condition, that, that negative self-image will frequently you know, rear its, its ugly head. And so I think the 30% of the population with the negative self-image, they are particularly vulnerable to addiction. And so when, you, when you're an addict, it means that you've found some kind of process or substance that makes the pain go away because obviously if you're living with a negative self-image your life is going to be quite painful and you could have like some positive experiences but you're going to filter them through your negative self-image so that you stay stuck in you know varying levels of, of self-hatred so for me as a someone growing up with that negative self-image and uh, discovering the high of falling in love Right and romantic infatuation and sexual excitement, you know, those romantic and sexual highs would take the pain away. And Air Supplies music, I think, kind of embodied that that love addiction that, that has characterized so much of my life and has probably played a significant role in why here I am at age 55 and I've never been able to sustain a relationship longer than a year. So. It's an interesting question. Why do we love the, the text that we love? Why do we love the music that we love? And as I understand it now, my, my love for Air Supply music is because it's, it's the music of the love addict, right? It's, a, it's the music that reflects myself, that reflects my uh, love addiction and, and you know, that yearning for escape. Oh, man, the mozzies are out here. So many sand flies and mosquitoes in this area. I was just reading a book on uh, Gladstone. So Gladstone's the big city, about uh, 30 minutes drive from here. And uh, it's a city of about 30,000 people. And according to this book, it was long known as a slum city. So I'm sitting right now in Tenham Sands. Gladstone's the big city, 30 minutes drive away. It's now a major international port. They have major liquid natural gas plants and you always see you know, major tankers lining up even here from Tanham Sands all the way into the Gladstone port to, uh, to pick up the, the natural gas and then ship it around the world. So now Gladstone's an international port, but in its media portrayals until maybe the 1980s, it was known as the slum city, according to this book. And so when I was seeing a doctor in Brisbane in 1989, I mentioned I was going up to, to Gladstone, he would warn me about, uh, you know, make sure you don't get any sexually transmitted diseases from the girls in, in Gladstone. Vivian Veritas, long time no see. Vivian, I am thinking about moving to Australia. So I feel very happy here. I've got family here. And now I'm about to like rationalize and give reasons for why I, I want to move to Australia. But it, it's primarily an emotional experience. Right? I had an emotional experience my first morning in Australia, just walking along the beach. And feeling at ease, feeling happy. Damn, there are so many mozzies out. Now one's on my mic. Uh, that, that 
like when I ride the public transport in LA, I'm typically the, the only you know white person on the bus. But I don't have that in Australia. Public transportation is a perfectly pleasant experience in Australia. I go to the beach. There are no gangs. There's no rampant crime. Uh, there's just there's just more of a sense of ease here. There, there's you know, virtually no crime. There's you know virtually nothing to be afraid of. And it's really easy to connect to other people because you have things in common. You're on the, on the same wavelength. So the uh, United States has never had the, the camaraderie and, and cohesion and homogeneity that Australia and England have, let alone the cohesion and homogeneity that France, Germany, and uh, Japan have. So I just walk around here and I feel at ease. Now, probably like after I move here, I remember when I moved here before, music is distraction or confirmation. Hurt without her is a great sell to women, ego boost. Yeah. So when I moved here before, after about six to nine months, I, I did start missing the United States. So probably if I, I move here, there will be things that I miss about the United States. But right now I'm just uh, enjoying the, the camaraderie, the cohesion, the uh, sense of connection, the high levels of social trust. And it just means that I you know, walk, walk along feeling happy and at ease and can go, oh, g'day, mate. How's it going, mate? Like, it's just effortless to open up uh, conversations with people and you're kind of on the on the same page. And uh, so I'm thinking about, very seriously thinking about making this uh, big shift to move to the eastern suburbs of Sydney. I mean, quality of life is just so good, right? You can use public transport. You can walk around at night, at during the day. You're not threatened. You're not under assault. Uh, you, you, it's very easy to form bonds. There's like a whole, whole thing. There's a whole culture of mateship, right? Where you're basically, you'll, you'll do anything for your mates and they'll do anything for you. And so I, I found that in, in Orthodox Judaism, uh, that, that culture of mateship. And I also find it uh, throughout Australia, which uh, is absolutely intoxicating to me. So I'm having a ball. So I guess back to Shabbat versus Christmas. So yesterday was Shabbat for me, and yesterday was, was Christmas. And uh, my, my family tradition, meaning not my immediately family, but my, my relatives, my uncles and aunties and nieces and cousins, etc., all gather in Tenem Sands for Christmas, and I, I gathered too. So I, I wasn't going to you know, shun family Christmas uh, for, for my Shabbat. So... I observe Shabbat by, I would walk, you know, to, to breakfast, all right, uh, I, di I didn't, I didn't drive, and so it was, a, it was less than a mile, and then I would walk to, you know, Christmas lunch, and uh, obviously I'm, I'm vegetarian, and, you know, I can eat, I can eat fruit, and I can eat salad, and so it wasn't hard finding things to eat, so I can keep kosher, uh, now, one, one thing that I, compromised on is that uh, when someone says Merry Christmas to me I say Merry Christmas back so normally I would not say that because it's it's inauthentic to being a, an Orthodox Jew so I know some Orthodox Jews disagree with me about this they don't think it's any big deal but when you're saying Merry Christmas you're essentially saying that Jesus is the Christ and 
as an Orthodox Jew, obviously, I, I can't say that. I don't have any any religious faith. Any, you know, I'm not a I'm not a theologically resonating with Christianity. I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Australia is overwhelmingly a secular country, so Christmas is you know far more of a of a secular celebration in, in Australia than it is in America. But you know, my druthers is that I wouldn't say Merry Christmas, and so I try to avoid that in the United States. But virtually nobody says Happy Holidays here, right? So that's it's kind of nice because Christmas is a huge Australian holiday, and Nobody says happy holidays. Nobody. I haven't encountered anyone say happy, happy holidays. What people say is Merry Chrissy. I like that. Merry Chrissy. So Australians, Australians shorten everything. Like tinnies for, for tins. Uh, it's it's uh, ISO for living in isolation. Uh, Australians have some... I just, I just love the slang here. Uh, so yeah, Merry Chrissy. Like everyone's wishing each other Merry Chrissy. And uh, none of the shops are open. Yeah, so uh, normally I wouldn't say Merry Christmas because ideologically it just seems inconsistent with being an Orthodox Jew. And at the same time it's kind of inconsistent with my idea of trying to hold, carry my religion lightly. So, you know, I don't want to create unnecessary divisions between myself and other people. I don't want to be obnoxious. I don't want to be the, the fart at the, the dinner party. All right. I don't want to be the skunk at the, uh, at the big bash. Uh, and, and in America, I try to avoid it because in America, Happy Holidays is like perfectly acceptable in, in big cities. But uh, in, in regional Australia, and I think in, in Sydney too, like Merry Chrissy and Merry Christmas is de rigueur. So that's, that's a compromise that, that I've made. Um, so, yeah, this is an overwhelmingly secular country. Christmas is overwhelmingly secular. Uh, so, I, oh, also, I don't put on Christmas hats. And I didn't dress up special for Christmas. I didn't like wear something red. So I was like, why are you wearing something red? I wore this shirt to, to Christmas breakfast, Christmas dinner, right? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Vivian. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, I, will, I will connect with you uh, privately. Um, that's, I can't, can't imagine the, uh, the pain and the dis dislocation that, that comes with that. Wow. Wow. So, uh, if, if I do look better, if I do look uh, happier or giddy, as some people say, that's socially conditioned, right? It, it depends on me being in a society that is congenial with me, right? It's really hard, and I don't think it's even healthy to try to be help, you know, to happy on your own. We so need other people. And here I feel like I'm in a, uh, I'm in a place that is you know, just conducive to human happiness. It's like conducive to, to flourishing. Let me get some, some new angles here. So like my, my brother works in, in a garden center with, you know, with all these beautiful plants. Right? He's got all these beautiful plants around the home. And, and working in a, in a garden center, it's, uh, 
it's, I think it's highly conducive to happiness. My brother can't remember the last time he, he heard an angry word from a customer. He, he, he's not, he never has angry customers. Can you imagine going through your day, never hearing an angry word? Like I've been in Australia for five weeks, and I don't think I've heard an angry word. Now, Australians do get angry. I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I haven't seen it. Like the kind of tension and you know, racial conflict and, and crime and dislocation and decoherence and low social trust that, that characterize you know, much of life in, in Los Angeles is just not here. Now, I still love Los Angeles. There are many wonderful things about LA. And I don't think LA is a dystopia by, by any means. But uh, it's, it's just really intoxicating here. And it has a, has a big effect on my happiness levels. Right, to, to walk down the street and just be happy to see people, right, and to be able to speak with them. So in Los Angeles, you know, it seems like half the population does not speak English. So I remember going to Friday Night Live at Temple Sinai in Westwood, and uh, the mayor, Antonio Villaragosa, spoke to us, and he encouraged us to speak to someone who does not speak your language. Like, how on earth do you speak to someone who does not speak your language? Like, how incoherent is, is that? So, I'm not encountering many people here in Australia that, uh, that don't speak my language. So, <laughs> there's an attitude uh, among some of my, my relations like, oh, is, is Luke still into that Jewish thing? I thought he'd given that up. <laughs> And that's a totally understandable family reaction because I am a man of enthusiasms. But there are some enthusiasms that I pick up that, that last for many, many decades, such as uh, my, my enthusiasm for, for Judaism. Now, my enthusiasm for Judaism has waxed and waned, but it, it's not that uh, I've ever completely lost my enthusiasm for Judaism. It's just that the aspects of, of being Jewish that, that excite me change. So... I really enjoy that I can go to a synagogue and I can immediately feel a bond and at home and at ease with, you know, with my tribe without respect to any of their beliefs, right? Plenty of atheists go to synagogue. You know, plenty of secular people, secular Jews go to synagogue. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. You don't have to keep kosher. You don't have to believe certain things about uh, God. Uh, about the divine nature of the Torah to feel perfectly at home in, in a synagogue. So while many Christian churches, as, as I experienced, were heavily divided uh, on lines of ideology, generally speaking, I have not found that in you know, most of the synagogues I go to. There are plenty of non-religious orthodox synagogues. Right? You've got an orthodox synagogue, you've got an orthodox rabbi, you've got an orthodox services, all right? and most people who go there are not religious. Right? But they go there because it's a meeting place. Right? It's, it's a tribal meeting place. It's a tribal watering hole. It's, it's a way of connecting with your people. It's a source of, of solace and joy and friendship and connection and community and networking and tradition. These are all wonderful things. So I, I 
when I was initially getting into Judaism, I was all about the ethical monotheism, that, that Judaism has this mission to spread ethical monotheism in the world, the, the teaching that there's one God whose primary demand for our behavior is ethical behavior. There's one God who primarily wants us to be good to one another. And I, I love that. You know, I still love that. But that, that doesn't have, have to be you know, the prime focus uh, of my Judaism. There are days or months and I, I can appreciate other approaches because I know, just for me, I get sick at times of people talking about God, 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 God. Right? To me, it's reductive. But to me, like God is interested in more things than religion and theology. And so often I, I, I experience people who are always invoking God, 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 God as, as a flight from reality, right? People want a magic key. And then for many people, God is, is the magic key. And then for other people, the Jews are the magic key. And then for other people, it's you know, libertarian economics is the, the magic key, or you know, race is the, the magic key, or you know, twelve-step recovery is the magic key, or you know, psychology or psychoanalysis you know, provides the magic key to how the world works. And there is no magic key. There are some useful ways of viewing life. For example, you know, IQ tests and group IQ levels of high, are highly predictive of certain group life outcomes right there are more or less useful ways of you know understanding things in life but there's there's no magic key and so i find it reductive when people are constantly invoking god as the solution to all their problems and to the solution to the problems of the people around them and to the solutions of, of society and uh, i find that boring right it, it gets on my nerves after a certain point i go no like stop stop talking to me about God I feel like you're using God as an excuse to avoid reality I feel like you're using God as an excuse to avoid taking responsibility I feel like you're using God as an excuse to avoid making hard decisions I feel like you're God you're using God as an excuse to looking at your choices more clearly I feel like you're using God to try to escape from the bewildering nature of life and the many questions that life is constantly asking us, the many challenges of life, and you're just trying to reduce it. Oh, it all comes down to God. And you know, for some people that might work, but to me, it's just uh, it's like reducing all the wonderful colors and excitement in life to to like just one color. Like I like the color black, but I don't want everything to be black. Now, I like the color blue, but I don't want everything to be blue, right? I, I, I think there should be, uh, we should be able to talk about things in a completely secular way at times and uh, talk about things you know, without reference constantly to God or to religion or to race or to recovery. Like, you know, one, one note Charlies get really boring. So... I had a Christmas, and I didn't discuss Judaism once. Right? I didn't discuss my Jewish identity once. I didn't discuss my Jewish conversion once. I didn't discuss my Jewish path. I, I had a Shabbat completely free of any discussion of anything Jewish. I just simply hung out with my family. All these bloody muzzies. And, uh, yeah, I was wearing my yarmulke, and I didn't dress up in red for Christmas, and I wasn't... Um, 
wearing Santa hats and I didn't pull any uh, of those uh, things that you pull, crackers or something. Like two people like pull and like, and then there's uh, some small gift inside. Not that I have anything against it, but you know, I didn't, I didn't, uh, no, I didn't, I didn't go all uh, red for, for Christmas. It was a uh, time to hang out with family, and I didn't discuss theology. I didn't discuss God. I didn't discuss religion. I wasn't the skunk at the the garden party. I don't think I was a downer. I don't think I detracted from anyone else's Christmas. Right? We have such a huge effect on other people. And so I think it's really important to me to not be a downer, <laughs> to, to, to add joy where I can add joy, and to add comfort when I can add comfort. And uh, wow, I, I feel like uh, reciting the prayer of St. Francis that when there is anger, now I'll bring peace. When there is sadness, I'll bring comfort. When there is division, I'll bring harmony. <laughs> so I know that, that Dennis Prager talks about how his older brother, who's always been an Orthodox Jew, so Dennis was never really Orthodox, uh, but his older brother, who's a doctor, He's always been an Orthodox Jew, but he would go caroling. He would go singing Christmas carols, I think, with his, his university uh, fraternity. So there are plenty of Jews who you know, participate in, in Christmas to, to varying degrees without seeing, seeing it as a, a religious thing. So I find it interesting that there are Orthodox Jews who go Christmas caroling. So I like Christmas. Like, I like Christian culture. I, you know, appreciate, you know, December being different. I appreciate people being a little nicer. I like the, the music moderately, <laughs> mildly. So in, in home, I was in uh, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You was the, uh, the big song. So I was hearing a lot of uh, Christmas music. So I started Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You was the number one uh, selection. And then uh, Wham!, Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. The very next day, I gave it away. This year, to save me from tears, I'll save it for someone special. So that was on the, the, the playlist. And then uh, We Are the World. Remember that anthem from 1984 to raise money for uh, starving people in Ethiopia? So I think we need another big uh, anthem with all the rock stars to try to end the civil war in Ethiopia. So I think that the Christians and the Muslims, right, they're engaged in a civil war in Ethiopia. And don't you think that if, if all the, the great pop singers got together and sung a, sang a song, that that could end the civil war, right? We, we, we had uh, farm aid and we had, you know, Hungary and Ethiopia aid. And, and now we need a song to reduce murder between Christians and Muslims in Ethiopia. So perhaps, you know, this community, we can write that song that ends the civil war in Ethiopia. What do you think? And then, then uh, also played on Christmas morning here was, uh, will they know it's Christmas? So that, I think that was the British response to We Are the World. So that all the, the British pop singers got together. Will they know it's Christmas over there? Uh, 
So those were the hits. Uh, so yeah, it's it was nice being with family, and it was nice you know, not sacrificing who I am. So I think we're constantly faced with with choices to sell out our integrity for the sake of connection, or stand in our integrity and and risk connection. So let's say somebody wants you to do something. Let's say your spouse, all right? Your spouse wants you to do something that would cause you to violate your integrity in, in something important, all right? So your spouse wants you to do something, let's say that's a form of theft. That's a form of, of lying. It's a form of, of selling out some other commitment that you've made, all right? Any, any relationship is going to have constant choices between do you sell out your integrity to preserve your connection to your spouse, to your child, to your parent, to your friend? Or do you sacrifice your integrity to preserve the connection? Or do you risk your connection to preserve your integrity, right? And so I think we're all frequently challenged by that. And so uh, sometimes it will cost you a marriage, right? If you're not prepared to, to constantly sell out your integrity and what you stand for, it may cost you your marriage. Uh, on the other hand, if you do sell out your integrity, your spouse will lose respect and, and love for you. And, and that could cost you your marriage too. So it's, a, it's an interesting issue. So many times we think, you know, oh, I don't want to sacrifice my integrity and we're just being delusional, right? We're just being petty. So, so sometimes it's worth making compromises to maintain connection. But sometimes by selling out yourself and what you stand for and who you are, you devalue the connection because you are no longer you. Because, man, these mozzies are just driving me crazy. You are no longer you. Like the, you, the person that, 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 that got married, that person is no longer here because you so constantly sold yourself out and compromised. Now, sometimes compromise is the right thing to do. This is elucidated in David Schnark's great book, Passionate Marriage. Right? You will constantly be called upon to choose between your integrity and, and your connections. And uh, it's, it's very painful. So I could, you know, I could sell out my, my Jewish identity to fit in with, you know, my, my family for, for Christmas, right? Uh, my, my family didn't ask me to, to do that, but, you know, I could have felt that that yearning. I, have you ever been part of a group where you felt the peer pressure or your spouse put pressure on you or your friends uh, put, uh, put pressure on you? Yeah, get a citronella candle, mate. Grow, grow some hand citrus for those suckers. Yeah, way too many sand flies and, and uh, mosquitoes around here. So uh, many people who moved to this area became quite irate at all the sand flies. And, you know, one woman marched into the office, I think, of the mayor or the local developer and, like, put her, you know, badly sand fly bitten, you know, baby on his desk and said, what are you going to do about this? Uh, 
virtually no mosquitoes in Los Angeles in, in my memory. So Los Angeles, that's one good thing they've done. They, they've wiped out the, the mosquitoes. So, yeah, what do we do about uh, human connection uh, when it, it threatens our integrity? And so I think it's, it's really easy just to sell out to try to maintain human connection but then you're going to feel lousy about yourself. On the other hand, you can, you can wield your integrity as a bloody weapon to keep people at bay. So I know many people who use every excuse possible to keep others at bay. Like coronavirus, COVID has been an absolute blessing to many people because then they can set you know, all sorts of laws to keep other people at bay. And... So many people are looking for excuses, whether it's in their religion or whether it's COVID or, you know, whether it's their integrity about, you know, the environment. Uh, many people are using all sorts of excuses to keep other people at bay. And that's obviously not the path to a happy life. Right? Being afraid of other people, being afraid of human connection, being afraid of the vulnerability that comes when you're, you're connected to other people. That's, that, that's, that's not a good way to live. On the other hand, I have formed such intense connections that it's frightened me because I would realize I would give up anything to sustain these connections. Like I've, I've been in relationships that were, that were just so intoxicating to me that I would give up anything to stay in those relationships. And then the more desperately I try to cling on, the more the other party would, you know, want to be rid of me. And also, you know, non-sexual relationships, just uh, friendships. I've had some, you know, incredibly in intense friendships where the, the conversation was so intoxicating, the, the connection, the friendship was so intoxicating that I was highly motivated to you know, compromise in, in any way possible to maintain that, that connection. So... I know I'm not alone in this. I'm thinking about one friend who doesn't want to get into any kind of romantic relationship because it hurts so much when it ends. And with every, with every relationship comes the possibility of betrayal. Like as soon as you form any kind of bond with someone, that immediately creates the possibility of betrayal. Betrayal meaning that they may indeed act in ways contrary to your expectations. So we use that hyperbolic word betrayal to label people who act differently than what we expect or what we wanted. And so we may you know, go on a journey to visit a friend and they might say, hey, I can't hang out with you tonight because I've got this work obligation. So by putting work first ahead of your relationship, you may feel betrayed. betrayed. It's like, hey, I just drove 300 miles to see you and you're going to put work first. You're betraying our friendship. And that's like a hyperbolic reaction to someone having different priorities than what you wanted or what you, you expected. But as soon as we form any relationship, we're ensuring that there are going to be times that we feel betrayed. Right? So by converting to Orthodox Judaism, it must have felt like betrayal to many people who are in my life that I'd walked away from the religion in which I was raised. Now, by converting to Orthodox Judaism... That doesn't mean that I don't think that sometimes there are, there are you know, valid criticisms of the behavior of certain Jews or I've exposed uh, some you know, bad behavior by, by certain rabbis, some sexually predatory uh, behavior by rabbis. And by exposing that, then you know, other Jews would say, wow, you, you betrayed your, 
your conversion to Judaism because you're making us look bad in front of the, the non-Jews. So all sorts of people constantly feel betrayed by me for various reasons because I don't live up to their expectations of me. So I'm, I'm impressed by people who've never lost a friend, but sometimes I've had friendships you know, severely damaged because I simply went in a different direction. Uh, so, for example, when I embraced the Nathan Kaufness critique of the Kevin McDonald culture of critique, there were friends, friendships that were damaged and, and destroyed by that, simply because it seemed to me that the evidence was pointing in this uh, direction. That seemed to me that you know, Nathan Kaufness made a made a stronger case than Kevin McDonald did, and then as a result, you know, all sorts of people felt betrayed. And I may. I may read something today that causes me to completely go back on things I've been saying for the past 40 years, right? I am constantly changing as my understanding of life changes, as I get new information or new perspectives. Like I'm constantly changing and I find that frequently puts a great deal of uh, strain on, on my friendships or relationships or even virtual relationships, such as with viewers who, who are often, uh, disgusted when it, when I changed my mind on something. So, for example, I thought voter fraud in the United States was a pretty significant deal. And so when Donald Trump lost the, appeared to be losing the 2020 election, uh, my immediately thought was, you know, is this voter fraud? And then I investigated the matter and I found that there's very little evidence for, there's no evidence for substantial voter fraud in the United States. And so most of my audience felt betrayed. I, I would do live streams where every single person in the chat you know, passionately, vehemently disagreed with me. I had people quite willing to like completely burn all bridges to me because I would not sign on with the false allegation that voter fraud played a, a major role in the 2020 election. So I realize how easy it is to get captured by your, your audience, right? It's, uh, it's intoxicating to have people appreciate you, and it's intoxicating to build you know, bonds with people uh, all over the world. Every single person in the chat at, on some streams, so we're talking 10, 20, you know, maybe 30 people. Uh, so it's intoxicating to develop an audience and develop a, a following or to develop uh, some, some income. Uh, it's so intoxicating that like a, any kind of good relationship, you're then heavily incentivized to sell out your integrity to maintain the relationship. So after the 2020 election, I was, I was faced with a dilemma. Did I want to put what I experienced, what I saw, what I felt as my integrity, that, that I had examined the evidence and, uh, and it did not seem to me that uh, voter fraud played any important role in the 2020 election. So I could sell out my, my integrity and what I understood to be truth to maintain a connection to my audience, or I could risk most of my audience walking away and being absolutely disgusted and uh, berating me. And uh, so I typically choose what I see, what I experience, what I think is my integrity. Of course, I could be completely uh, delusional. So I have usually chosen my integrity and so a lot of relationships have then gone by the way so there may have been things that I could have done that uh, I could have carried my integrity more lightly so it was less obnoxious uh, but 
like like my father, I've kind of gone through my life and and blown up a lot of connections and relationships and, and, and community because my understanding of reality would change. And so for I from say I don't know, twenty fourteen to twenty seventeen I was I, I liked the, the populist right wing approach. To, to politics uh, because it was anti-immigration and it put social coherence and social trust as a primary value and, and I, I believe in, in both of those things. So I liked right-wing populism. And then with the false allegations of voter fraud and then the hysterical reactions against uh, COVID vaccines... Uh, it seems to me that the populist right and, and the right in general and conservatives in general had a really bad COVID. I don't think they were facing up to to the reality of the situation of how serious a threat this was. It seems to me, generally speaking, that uh, most of the lockdowns were were defendable and may very well have been the right call. I, I don't think the elites were imposing lockdowns and getting us uh, vaccinated to, for some you know, nefarious uh, agenda. They may be wrong about this or that, but I don't agree with the, the right-wing populist approach to COVID lockdowns. I, 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 I have discussed for the... No, I don't have discussed. I disagree with the anti-vaccine, uh, anti-COVID vaccine positions. I, I think some of the, the rioting in protests of the lockdowns uh, I think has been hysterical, and so with regard to to COVID, I think generally speaking, the elites have been right and the populists have been wrong. Now, with regard to immigration, I believe the populists are right, and the the elites are wrong. Uh, with regard to voter fraud, I believe the elites are right, and the populists are wrong. So. On some things I side with the populace, on, on some things I, I side with the elites. And I, I have a lifelong habit of you know, following what I believe at the time to be true, no matter the damage that then does to, to my relationships. So I'm in awe of people who've never lost a friend. And I, I, I'm in awe of people like Tucker Carlson who can you know build out this enormous audience. Uh, and... You know, I'm in awe of people who can make a living as a pundit, but I am disgusted by the nonsense that Tucker Carlson frequently spews. I'm disgusted by the things that he has to say to keep this, you know, this uh, low IQ populist audience. I think booster shots are a great idea. So Israel's now giving out uh, the fourth shot, so the second booster. So I, I got my booster shot as soon as I could. So I think uh, early October I got my, my booster shot. So uh, as I expected, remember when Omicron came out and there's a lot of discussion that Omicron may evade all the vaccines, and I said no. I, I would be shocked if Omicron avoided all vaccines, but that different vaccines may have different levels of protection. And, yeah, it turns out that getting the booster shot in addition to the vaccine plays a significant role in uh, protecting against Omicron and protecting against risks of, of death, severe illness, and hospitalization. So, main issue, you know, can you observe Shabbat and, and Christmas? Well, obviously, as a Jew, you can't observe the, the religious component of, of Christmas, but I think we can 
Doesn't Omicron seem like it is the vaccine? Yes, it does seem like it, uh, it could have very much a vaccine-like effect. So the Omicron surge seems to be uh, diminishing in South Africa. It, we have evidence from all sorts of countries now that uh, Omicron is less serious than, than Delta. And so I would expect that getting Omicron will provide significant protection against uh, future variants of COVID. But apparently there are people who've gotten sick with COVID three times. And so what's better, natural immunity or vaccine immunity? And it seems like the consensus elite position right now is that both are good. So I have friends who caught COVID and then think they don't need the vaccine. So there are studies that show that natural immunity is better than vaccine immunity. And then there are other studies that show vaccine immunity is better than natural immunity. It seems to me one would want all the immunity one could get from variants of COVID. So both natural immunity and vaccine immunity you know, embrace them. So to the best of my knowledge, I've never had COVID. So to the best of my knowledge, I only have uh, vaccine immunity. But it, it may well be true that people who caught Omicron and, and survive it will then have substantial immunity against future variants of COVID. And Omicron may be the beginning of the end of the COVID threat, maybe. So COVID will continue to mutate, but it may well mutate in increasingly less dangerous directions. So we may well move from pandemic to endemic. Now, I am in the state of Queensland, Australia right now, where the chief health officer says... Uh, essentially that he welcomes mass infections. Is it fair to say that long-term effects of the vaccines aren't really known? Uh, I, I, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting, uh, interesting question, and it's very well phrased, Elliot. It's very well phrased. So I think it's fair to say that we have no indications that the long-term effects of the vaccines are going to be negative. We've been vaccinating people for hundreds of years, and uh, sometimes some, some forms of vaccinations have uh, gone terribly wrong. But the vaccines approved for use with regard to COVID in, in the United States have been pretty well studied. And uh, we've been using vaccines very effectively against polio, against uh, what, chicken pox, uh, all sorts of things. So we have decades of very substantial positive health results from using vaccines. So... I don't believe we have any evidence to suggest that the long-term effects of the, the COVID vaccines approved for use in the United States will be negative because uh, we, we have a great deal of familiarity with vaccines and how they work over, over time and uh, the, the vaccines approved for the use in, in the United States. I don't think we have a single documented case of, of anyone dying from them. So... V-A-E-R-S, you know, people can lodge their adverse reactions to, to the vaccine, but that's just, you know, someone's self-report. That's, uh, that's not solid data. Okay, so back to the main topic, can, can one observe Shabbat and, and Christmas? And, yeah, I think you can, you can carry your identities lightly. So let's say you're a really strong, strong believer in, in the beauty of your people. Right, and the strengths of your people and the gifts of your people to the world, 
that doesn't mean you have to harp on the beauties of your people in, in every conversation. That doesn't mean that you have to you know, hate other people and doesn't mean that you can't you know, celebrate with other people. I think generally speaking in life, the more we can celebrate with other people, when we can experience other people's joys. The target of previous vaccines have been stable vaccines. This is the first time that vaccines have been developed for a virus that is still actively evolving. That's false. That's absolutely false. All right. Everything's, you know, viruses are always evolving. Uh, you don't think that the chickenpox evolves? You don't think measles mutates? You don't think polio mutates? Polio is caused by a virus. Polio mutates. But, to be honest, I haven't thought much about what you just raised. So I could do, I could do some more reading on it. But, yeah, I don't, I don't see any, any reason to be suspicious of the vaccines approved for use in, in the United States. So, there is no vaccine against chickenpox. Okay, smallpox. Thanks. I, one of those poxes. <laughs> right. We, we, we developed uh, vaccines against smallpox, what, back in the 18th century, Edward Jenner, when he noticed that uh, the, the milkmaids would get, what, milkpox, but that they, they then would be essentially immunized against uh, smallpox. So... We've essentially doubled our lifespans in the past 120 years because of vaccines and because of sanitation. So it used to be prior to about 100 years ago, most people died of infectious disease. Most people died young of infectious disease. And now most people don't. There's no way to gather long-term evidence on a vaccine that is a year old. Well, there is a way. You know, as time goes by, we will, we will know more and more. So the, uh, the vaccine was tested for a year, for almost a year. And, uh, and now it is over, over two years. We've got two years of, of testing of, of vaccines. And we have no empirical reason to believe that there's anything uh, dangerous or anything damaging about the COVID vaccines approved for use in the United States. Now, the the China vaccines against COVID and the Russian vaccines against COVID don't work. So, you know, what, what Chinese products do you, do you most equate with quality, right? We don't, we don't think of uh, Chinese or Russian uh, goods as being equated with quality. Yes, previous vaccines were tested for five years. Okay. And so this time they were tested for one year. All right. And... Uh, they were thoroughly tested, and uh, they were not rushed to the market. They were they went through very rigorous testing, and there's no reason to. We have no empirical evidence to believe that uh, they're dangerous. Like, give me some examples of previous vaccines that turned out ten years down the road. You know, they started producing all these maleffects. We don't have examples of that. When we've had previous vaccines where there were negative results, they happen immediately. They don't happen five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. We have no evidence that uh, vaccines you know, given in the past only start to show negative effects 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years you know, down the line. So, yeah, Russia does make some good military goods. 
and China does make some, you know, good quality goods as well. It's just uh, generally speaking, we don't associate either of those countries with high quality production. So, Shabbat versus Christmas. That's my, my primary topic, and uh, I'm sure there, there are many Christians who, who've gone to synagogue and, and found some sort of blessing for it. What about all the autism? Checkmate. No. We, we have no evidence that autism is caused by vaccines. We have more diagnoses of autism because medical providers are getting more skilled at and testing for autism is getting more competent. So when I Google why do we have so much more autism these days, that's the explanation that, that comes up. Like how when people get more expertise, when they develop better tests, then they are able to make more accurate diagnoses. So apparently what autism is much more likely among boys than among girls. Uh, if you have one autistic child then the odds are 2% to 18% that you'll have another autistic child. And apparently autism comes from the father. It's not, uh, it's not from the mother's genetic contribution. So I was just doing some, some study on, on autism. So yeah, Shabbat and Christmas. So it's also another opportunity to recognize that different religions have different gifts. Like there are all sorts of things that Christians do really well that uh, that uh, non-Christians can, can learn from and, and admire. And there are, there are things that Jews do really well, that uh, and Judaism does really well, that uh, non-Jews can admire. And there are probably things that, that Muslims do well, uh, you know, I can't name them right off, that uh, non-Muslims can, can learn from. So we can we can hold on to our own identity and we can hold on to our own integrity like for example Elliot and I strongly disagree about vaccines and uh, I think we may disagree about voter fraud and uh, you know we probably strongly disagree about all sorts of things and yet we're still friends so the more you disagree the more strain that does place on a friendship but strain does not equal devastation right you can you can have your your, your friendship will be slightly strained if you support different sports teams, if you have different favorite songs, right? So it's not easy to hold on to your integrity and hold on to the relationships that are most important to you. Uh, but it's a quest that is, that is worthy, right? So I have tended to volatility in that, you know, I'm holding on to what I think is my integrity and that's cost me a lot of relationships. And then other people... They fall much more on the side of they've given up their their what they think of as their integrity to hold on to their their relationships. So uh, I think the the ideal is the, the middle path, right? To try to do everything you can to maintain the relationships that are most important to you, while simultaneously not selling out your integrity, and uh, that's a, a tremendous challenge. So. Elliot and I, for example, and Ricardo and I, we passionately disagree about all sorts of things. And yet, you know, Elliot and, and Ricardo and uh, Half Galician and, uh, you know, Jim Bowden, these people are important to me. 
but they're not so important to me that I'm going to pull my punches in, in what I say on, on a live stream. I'm not going to change my positions. I'm not going to swallow my, my point of view. Um, on the other hand, if we're together and we're hanging out, yeah, I may you know, not, not bring up things that we disagree about so that we can just have a pleasant you know, social time together. So life is a narrow bridge. The, the important thing is not to be afraid. Bye-bye.